Hello, and welcome to the sermon podcast of First Baptist Church of Versailles, Missouri. It is our hope that the following message will help you grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. For more teachings, please visit our sermon page at fbcversailles.com. Mark chapter 9, verses 42 through 50. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to fall away, it would be better for him if a heavy millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to fall away, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than to have two hands and go to hell, the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to fall away, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to fall away, gouge it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt should lose its flavor, how can you season it? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with one another. I'm told that there are two kinds of people when it comes to filling the gas tank of your car. The first kind begins to look for a gas station when the needle is about halfway, maybe not quite to halfway. And the other kind has the needle buried in the red of the E, and they say, I know my car. I am the second kind. And because of that, I have had two times in my life that I have run out of gas while I've been on the road. And each time I ran out of gas was extremely embarrassing. The truth is that each time I ran out of gas, there was a little light and a dinging noise on my dashboard that told me, Hey, idiot, stop and get gas. (laughs) I'd been warned, but I had not listened. Warnings are a very important part of life. They begin when we're children, and our parents say to us, I'm warning you. Most homes and businesses are equipped with smoke alarms, which warn us of the danger of fire. Some homeowners install burglar alarms to warn them of the danger of someone trying to break in. Everyone has an alarm clock, that warns them of the danger of being late for work or to school or an appointment. Most cars are equipped with a horn, every car in fact, so that you can warn others about their terrible driving. And more people use, some people use the horn more than others. And most cars are equipped with this low fuel light and alarm to warn you of the danger of running out of fuel. But warnings are only helpful if you listen to them, and then you act on them. In the summer of 2008, a 17-year-old boy named Ferguson was tragically hit and killed by the Batman roller coaster at Six Flags in Georgia. Ferguson had scaled two fences, passing several signs 
that said, warning, restricted area, warning, keep out, warning, do not enter. And witnesses say that he was trying to retrieve a hat that he had lost while he was riding the ride. But even though he saw the warnings, he did not pay attention to them. He did not act on them. And the truly sad part about it was that it was not, his, it was not the park's first time that this had happened. A few years before that, at the same park and the same ride, another person was injured or was hit and killed as well. Again, warnings are only helpful if we listen to them and we act upon them. In our text today, Jesus gives several warnings. And when we're given warnings in Scripture, it's not to take away our fun, it's to protect us. These are fences. These are warning signs for us to pay attention in order to avoid spiritual death. And now you might remember at the beginning of Mark, Jesus began His public preaching ministry in chapter 1, verse 15, by saying, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. This was a warning for everyone who would listen and practice and put it into, and put it into practice. That if you would like to enter into the kingdom of God in order for you to be saved, you must repent. What are you repenting of? Your sin. Repentance happens whenever we realize our sin as truly evil as it is. When we realize that our sin is rebellion against the God who created us. Repentance happens not just when we realize it, but when we mourn over our sin. And most stop there. They think that if they feel bad enough for long enough, that that is good enough. It's not. Repentance has finished when we resolve to reject the sin in our lives and live for God. Repentance is a change of heart that le- or a change of mind that leads to a change of heart at a very deep and practical level. It makes us love what we once hated and hate what we once loved, our sin. Repentance is turning away from that sin and all of the sin in our lives and turning to Christ. As we've been studying Mark chapter 9, it has been surprising, at least to me, to, to see all the sin. And it's not from the crowd of people, it's from Jesus' own disciples. These were the hand-picked leaders, the hand-picked followers of Jesus, the ones that He had taught, the ones to whom He had revealed the secrets of the kingdom of God. Three of them had been witnesses of the transfiguration of the body of Jesus on the mountain, where His, where his earthly body was pulled back so that they could see His divine nature. And even after all of this, all of the teaching and all of the revealing, they still needed to repent. They had been arguing about which one of them was the greatest disciple. 
And then Jesus gave them an object lesson using a small child saying that the greatest disciple is really the greatest servant. He said that welcoming and protecting the weak and the vulnerable and the lowly believers, that's what makes you great in the kingdom of God. And right after he said that, and I mean right after he said that, John goes, well, Jesus, there was this guy trying to cast out demons and he wasn't part of us, so we stopped him or tried to stop him. And Jesus told John and he told the rest of the disciples, cut it out, leave him alone. Let him keep doing what he's doing because what he's doing is what we're doing. And if he's doing that, then he isn't going to say anything bad about us shortly afterwards. The disciples said he's not on our side. We, we don't want any competition because we can read between the lines, right, and what was going on. They were jealous. This man was, had cast out a demon when they were unsuccessful in doing so. They were filled with pride. And they were very petty. And it's on the heels of this encounter that we have our text today. And like Everyone else, each and every one of us, Jesus' disciples, his closest friends, needed to repent. And I think that there are many Christians who think that repentance is only what you do when you come to saving faith in Christ. That's how you get in. Repentance, they think, is the door. I repent of my sins and now I'm in. I'm good to go. But repentance isn't just something that we do to be forgiven of our sins. It's something that we ought to do every single day because every day we are battling the flesh and we must repent every day because we sin every day. Martin Luther, the 16th century monk who started the the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation, when he was nailing his 95 theses to the church door in Wittenberg, the very first one, the very first, the very first thing that he wanted everyone to know was this. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he called for the entire life of believers to be one of repentance, of penitence. We need to repent every day because we sin every day. Our repentance is our reminder that our strength does not come from ourselves, but it comes from Jesus. So Jesus confronts His disciples head on and us along with them. And this text is strong and it comes across in a harsh tone. You know, I don't think if I gathered up everybody's Bibles here and set them all out in front of me and looked at them, I doubt, I highly doubt, that anyone has these verses underlined or highlighted. No one has this verse written down in the front of their, these verses written down in the front of their Bibles as their life verse. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. That's my life verse. You'd be a pirate, right? And then shortly you'd lose the eye just because of the first day, you know, with the hook hand. These are nobody's life verses, but they're so important. Because sin is so serious. Jesus teaches this lesson 
by using three object lessons. The first one is the millstone. Jesus said, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to fall away, it would be better for him if a heavy millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Jesus uses that imagery of the little child again to tie this passage into the last one. And you'll remember that the little ones are the baby followers of Jesus. They're the baby Christians of verse 41. They're the ones who have faith, but their faith is weak. They're vulnerable. They're lowly. They're struggling, maybe, in their faith. And how does the children's song go? Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones, to Him belong. They are weak, but He is strong. Right? The little ones belong to Him. And here Jesus uses that language again. And this has a direct connection to the man that John had rebuked in the previous paragraph. It could be that their harsh treatment of this man, because he was a baby believer, could have shipwrecked his faith if they weren't careful. They were full of pride, thinking that they were the best, and jealousy because he was doing what they couldn't do. And their selfish sinfulness was getting the better of them, and it was potentially going to cause this man to fall away. And so Jesus says, whoever causes one of these little ones to fall away, and that phrase, cause to fall away, it's repeated four times in our passage this morning. And we actually get an English word from the Greek word that underlies this, and the English word is scandalize. And in Greek, it actually means the trigger of a trap. It's the part that you smear the peanut butter or the cheese on in the mouse trap. And when the mouse comes along and he moves that little trigger thing, contraption, the trap is tripped and he is caught. And that's the word here, cause to fall away. Jesus is telling them, not to be the trigger for someone else's fall, for someone else's sin. Don't be the reason that they sin. Don't be the reason that they fall away. It's a very serious issue, so serious, in fact, that Jesus tells them that it would be better for the trigger man to to have a millstone tied around his neck and thrown into the sea. And the Greek here is actually really funny. And I usually, I try not to talk about the Greek unless it's like important, but it's kind of funny here. It says that you make the millstone like a collar around your neck. And then, and then, and, they, and it's not just a millstone, but it's called, it, the word's in there in the Greek, donkey. It's the donkey millstone. And it was describing the bigger millstone that was so big that only a donkey would be able to move it. Not the one that you'd have at your house that you'd, crush the wheat into some little bit of flour. This is the big one that would crush a lot of flour. And he says it would be better to have this millstone tied around your neck and thrown to the bottom of the sea. And if it were thrown into the bottom of the sea, it would take you down with speed and force. And no matter how hard you kicked no matter how hard you would try to swim away, you would drown. The Romans executed people this way. And everybody knew about the graphic imagery that Jesus was using. Drowning is a horrible way to die. Yet Jesus says that it is better to die that horrible death than to cause a weak brother 
to stumble into sin. This call for self-denial, this call for radical Christian love, is the same thing that Paul would teach in Romans chapter 14 and 15. And he begins in verse 1, Welcome anyone who is weak in the faith, but don't argue about disputed matters. Instead, decide never to put a stumbling block or pitfall in the way of your brother or sister. Do not destroy someone for whom Christ died. Let us pursue what promotes peace and what builds up one another. And then in 15, he continues, Now we who are strong have an obligation to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not to please ourselves, for even Christ did not please himself. Therefore, welcome one another, just as Christ also welcomed you to the glory of God. Chapter 14 and 15 in Romans. Read it later. It talks, it's this, paints this beautiful picture of unity and self-sacrificing love in the body of Christ. Now in verse 41, Jesus says that there's a reward that God will not overlook any small act of kindness shown to believers. But in verse 42, causing a little one to stumble and fall away is such a great offense that a quick drowning is much more to be preferred. It's better. And since Jesus is addressing the issue of John's rebuke, we know that the sin that he's mentioning here specifically is pride. His ego was too big. And the lesson of the millstone is not to let your pride, your ego, your rights, your ways, your freedom cause a weaker brother to fall into sin. Don't trigger him to sin. Now, we expect the world to try and trip us up, don't we? When I walk out into the world, I know that they're laying traps everywhere to try and cause me to stumble in my relationship with Christ. You don't have to watch the TV very long to figure that out or see advertisements in magazines or on billboards or all kinds of things everywhere that are trying to pull you into sin. They're tempting you. They're triggering you to sin. But we don't expect that and we shouldn't expect that from our brothers and sisters in Christ. Jesus is calling us to be extremely careful about how we treat others, especially those who are young in the faith. We must be encouraging rather than discouraging. We must be helpful and not hindering them. One last thing before we move on to the next passage, the next verse, verse 43. Do you recall what Jesus said in verse 37 of chapter 9? Look back at it for a moment if you have your Bible open. He says, whoever welcomes one of the one little child such as this in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but him who sent me. How you treat another believer is how you are treating Christ. How you treat another believer is how you are treating God. So don't lay a trap for your brother. Don't trigger his sin. Encourage him. Love him. Help him. Then there's a shift that happens in verse 43. In verse 42 it says, If you cause one of these little ones. And in verse 43 it shifts to you and you. 
causing yourself to sin. He says, and if your hand causes you to fall away, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than to have two hands and go to hell, the unquenchable fire. Verse 45, and if your foot causes you to fall away, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. In verse 47, and if your eye causes you to fall away, gouge it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell. That's a radical surgery, right? That is a radical surgery. But Jesus is saying that if something causes you to sin, take radical action to rid yourself of the source of that sin, to rid yourself of the desire. Don't trigger yourself. Some church, some people in church history took this verse, these verses literally and they cut off hands and feet and eye, gouged out eyes and castrated themselves. But the problem was that there was no amount of surgery on the outside that would cure the problem of sin on the inside. And so what they found was when they cut off their hand, foot, and gouged out their eye that they were still sinners because what they needed was a new heart. So most people have recognized that Jesus was using hyperbole. He was exaggerating for effect. And we know that this, these verses do not mean that we should literally cut off our hand, our foot, or gouge out our eyes. But there's a problem. And the problem is, is that the question is, what does this mean then? If it doesn't mean that we literally do that, then what does it mean? And that same word, causes to fall away, is used in each of these instances here. He's talking about the things that trip you up, the things that cause you to sin, that cause you to stumble. And then he uses the most important parts of the body, the hand, the foot, and the eye. And when you think about it, the hand, foot, and eye are the leading perpetrators when it comes to our sinfulness. We see something with our eye and we walk across the room and pick it up with our hand. When a man goes to work, he wears equipment to protect these body parts specifically. He'll put leather gloves on to protect his hands. He'll put on steel-toed boots to protect his feet. And he'll put on safety glasses to protect his eyes. How many of you ever watched uh, the New Yankee Workshop with Norm Abram? Remember that show? I used to watch it every weekend with my dad. Uh, I mean, maybe it wasn't every weekend, but it felt like that. We always watched it. And uh, Norm Abram, at the beginning of every show, would say that you should know the safety rules and follow them for your equipment because warnings are only helpful if we listen and, and then act on them, right? But then he would say, he would say, there's no more important safety rule than to wear these, your safety glasses, or something like that, very close. God only gave us two eyes, and they don't grow back. Ask someone who has lost an eye. Ask someone who has had a foot amputated. Ask someone who has lost their hand in a farming accident how important those parts of the body are. 
They're very important. I'm again reminded of a children's song. By the way, we should be teaching our children. We should continue to sing these even as adults. I don't know that I've moved on from these elementary truths of God's Word, but the children's song, Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. For the Father up above is looking down in love, so be careful, little eyes, what you see. And then it goes on, be careful, little ears, what you hear. Be careful, little tongue, what you say. Be careful, little hands, what you, what you do. And be careful, little feet, where you go. We teach this same exact truth that's found in this passage right now to our children in that song. Because we know that those things will trip us up. And we teach our children to be cautious. And we should remember ourselves to be cautious. John Owen, an English church leader in the 17th century, emphasized this teaching of Jesus when he wrote, Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. Jesus used this shocking metaphor because eternal life and death are at stake. So what is it then that we're called to cut off in order to save our souls? One theologian wrote that for some today, turning off the television would be as bad as plucking out an eye or maybe throwing away our phones or destroying our internet connections. The real trouble with this passage is that we soften it too much to mean something much less than what Jesus is actually calling for. It needs to keep its sharp edge so that there's still a little sting, but not so sharp that we cut our hands off with it. Our culture wants it to mean something else, something much softer, something much less harsh, and something much more guilt-free. They want us to take the threat of hell off of the table. I read, I read a statistic this week. 72% of Americans say that they believe in heaven. 58% of Americans don't believe in hell. Among Christians surveyed, only 85% believed in heaven. And 70%. These are people who say that they believe that the Bible is the Word of God. And that it's true. And only 85% believed that heaven was real. And only 70% believed that hell was real. They've softened the message. They've compromised the truth so that they will be embraced by the world. Jesus, however, deliberately chooses harsh, scandalous imagery to warn the disciples that their lives were hanging in the balance, that half-hearted concern for their sin wasn't enough, that it would leave their lives vulnerable to punishment. Eternal life and death are in jeopardy. I think one of the reasons that we want to soften this passage is that we believe that our sins are not as bad as they really are. English pastor J.C. Ryle wrote at the beginning of his work on holiness, he who would make great strides in holiness must first consider the weightiness of their sin. 
We must understand the weightiness of our sin, the gravity of our sin, the seriousness of our sin. And it's only when we understand how wretched our sins are that we begin to understand the length to which God had to go in order to save us from them. The length to which Jesus is calling His disciples to go, the sacrifice that He's calling them to make, reveals to us the serious nature which He believed sin to be. Imagine you go to the doctor and the test results are back and he opens up the chart and he says, oh, there is something seriously wrong with you. And then he walks over to the window and says, that's such a bummer. But look how beautiful it is outside today. The sun is shining, the birds are chirping, the trees are swaying in the breeze. Let's forget about your test results and just enjoy this beautiful day. You would go, no, we're going to talk about this right now because this is serious. There are times when God is dealing with our hearts and soul as we read the scriptures and as we gather together with the saints that we're struck with the serious nature of our sinful condition Yet, we are like the doctor wanting to ignore the sin problems in our own lives. And Jesus is saying, this is serious. Don't don't wait. You need to deal with this right now. And whatever it is that is keeping you from following Jesus, it's not worth it. As important as it seems losing whatever it is, No sacrifice is too great to gain eternal life. And as dear as our hands and our feet and our eyes are to us, and as dear as that sin in your life might be, Jesus says, cut it off. Get rid of it. One evangelist said one reason sin flourishes is that it's treated like a cream puff instead of a rattlesnake. We must stop coddling our sins and start crucifying them instead. And I can already hear it now because I know that my flesh is saying it too. That's too much to ask. The sacrifice is too great It would cost me too much. I might lose friends or family. My reputation. I might lose my pride. But what's better? To suffer here for a little while or for all of eternity in hell. I think it's better for our pride to be hurt a little for our egos to be knocked down a notch or two, our comforts in this life, and maybe the things that we think make them easy to be taken away during this very temporary life that we are living than to spend all of eternity in hell. Jesus seems to think the choice is easy. Cut it off. Pluck it out. Throw it into the deepest parts of the sea. Whatever it takes, do it. 
It is better to limp into heaven than to dance into hell. What's the alternative? In verse 47, Jesus says that we are be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. Jesus believes in hell. Jesus taught about hell. Jesus said that it was eternal and that the torment of it was also eternal. He warns us here to do whatever it takes to stay out of it. The description of the worm and the unquenchable fire here is actually a quote from Isaiah chapter 66, verse 24. And some Ancient manuscripts include this quotation from Isaiah that's found in verse 48. They also include it in verse 44 and 46, but it's absent from the earliest and best manuscripts. But it really doesn't matter if it was in the early ones or the later ones, or if it should be in there three times or just the one. The effect of it is the same. Hell should be avoided at all costs. It is a terrible place of punishment. The word that is translated hell is Gehenna. And it was originally a real location, the Valley of Hinnom. That's what Gehenna means, the Valley of Hinnom. And it was a valley that was just outside of Jerusalem, used by the wicked king Ahaz for their worship to the pagan deity Molech. Unspeakable things were done in the name of their worship, their idolatrous worship to him, including sacrificing children alive in the fire, and they would beat drums to drown out the screams of the babies. The righteous King Josiah put a stop to it. We read about that in 2 Kings chapter 23. But the valley of Hinnom came to be used as a landfill and as a dump where human excrement and rubbish and animal carcasses were disposed of and burned, and the fire continued day and night there, because there was always trash to burn. And the worms never died there because there was always flesh to consume. Thus it was symbolically the place of divine punishment. It depicted a place of eternal separation from the love of God the Father, and it was an illustration of the wrath of God in His final judgment. Hell is not temporary. It is forever People don't go there and are burned out of existence. They are punished eternally. Those who want to continue to love their sin more than they love Jesus will spend their eternity in it. And it's so important for us as sinners to trust Jesus Christ so that we can be delivered. Not just from the punishment of hell, but delivered from our sinful condition so that we can be saved and it should and this picture of hell should cause us to be urgent about taking this message to the lost and the dying if hell is real and it is and if it's as bad as we think it is and it's much worse why would we not try to do as much as we can to keep people from going there we should be out in the world telling other people about the gospel of Jesus. We should be making it really hard for people in Morgan County to go to hell. Finally and quickly, 
the salt. It seems like Jesus is shifting gears in verse 49, but he isn't. He does shift the kind of fire that he's talking about. It goes from a fire of punishment to a fire of purification. The only time that salt and fire are mentioned together in the Bible was in the Old Testament where sacrifices are concerned. Leviticus 2 tells us that God required salt to be included with their sacrifices and then burned. And the salt was a reminder of their covenant with God. You might have heard the phrase, the salt of the covenant. That's where this has come from. And just as salt was used as a a preservative for foods, God wanted them to remember that He was preserving their lives. And just as salt was used to purify, God wanted them to God wanted them to know that he was purifying them. And the salt would remind them of those two things. So the lesson continues. Whatever is keeping you from following Jesus, completely cut it off. Let him preserve your life. Let him purify your life. Be willing to sacrifice everything for God. In Romans chapter 12, verse 1, Paul urges believers to offer their bodies as living sacrifices being willing to give up anything and everything for the kingdom of God. The sacrifice that ended up on the altar was consumed by fire. And it was consumed by the fire of God. And our lives offered up to God as sacrifices are also consumed by God and a burning passion for His glory. The question that Jesus is asking is this, Would you rather endure the fires of hell as a lost sinner or the purifying fires of God as a sacrifice for His glory? Verse 50, I think, ties it up very neatly. The preserving and purifying aspect of salt is directed at our relationships with one another. It says, salt is good, but if the salt should lose its flavor, how can you season it? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with one another. Remember, they were arguing about which one of them was the best, putting the other guys down in order to lift themselves up. And Jesus calls them in light of the millstone, in light of the lesson from the radical surgery, to instead be at peace, to salt one another's lives, to encourage and purify and help each other. What can we conclude about this passage? First, sin is something that we should show no mercy towards. The story goes that a man was praying with his pastor at the altar, and he prayed a prayer that the pastor had heard prayed many times before. Lord, take the cobwebs out of my life. And just as the man said it, the pastor interrupted, and kill the spider too, Lord. How many times have we asked God to forgive us of some sin? How many times have we asked God to help strengthen us in our temptation, but we have left the source of that temptation in our lives? We cannot mollycoddle our sins. We must kill it. Second, dealing with sin can and will be painful. Jesus tells them to Cut it off. Gouge it out. Whatever it takes, get rid of it. And I wish that we only had to do this once. Repent and poof. 
It all goes away. We never have to deal with that sin again. But sin is like cancer. We do the surgery to remove the tumor, but it grows back again and again. And we have to keep on crucifying the flesh until the day that we walk into heaven. The other day I was complaining about some pain that I was having in my body to someone who was just a couple years older than me. And they gave me some wisdom that only people with gray hair can give. And he said to me, it doesn't get any better. (laughs) What an optimist. (laughs) The same is true about our sin, though. As we age, I think it actually gets more difficult because the traps into which we fall become more numerous. The sins that we have held on to so dearly all these many years have roots deep down into our lives. And Satan knows all of our weaknesses and where to apply the pressure. And when the surgery begins to remove it, we must go much deeper than we first anticipated. And the pain that comes along with it increases. And that's why Jesus says this has to be radical. We have to cut it off. We have to pluck it out. It literally sticks something behind your eye and pop it out of its socket. That's what the picture, that's what the imagery is. He says to kill it if necessary. Because the most important thing is that we are walking the pathway of godliness and of holiness. And whatever it costs, whatever you must deny, whatever you have to say no to, whatever it takes, it's worth it. Lastly, warnings are only helpful if we listen to them and act upon them. Jesus has given us a warning this morning. And I did mean for that to rhyme. He's given us a warning this morning. Will you listen? Will you act? Eternal judgment waits in the balance. If you've never put your hope in Christ, this morning is the morning to do that. Jesus Christ gives us hope that when we confess our sins, that He'll forgive us. That when we lay our life down, He will breathe His life into us. We get a new life, a new start, and a power that comes along with it. And those of us who are believers should be taking that message to the rest of the world. Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of First Baptist Church of Versailles. We would love it if you joined us in person. Our services are Sunday at 1045 a.m. and Wednesday evening at 6 p.m. We are located at 211 East Jasper Street in Versailles, Missouri. For more sermon recordings, visit our sermon page at fbcversailles.com.